Welcome to the Life Point Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are currently preaching through a series titled, Give Your Servant Wisdom, a series on the rise and fall of King Solomon. In our sermon today, Pastor Cody Cannon will be preaching through 1 Kings chapter 1. If you guys have your Bible or device with you, would you please open it up to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings near the beginning of your Bible. I was criticized earlier this week by a friend in love that I, when I op- ask you guys to open up uh, your Bibles to books that you don't normally open things up to, I start reading way too fast. And, uh, and so I'll give you some time to find First Kings. But I would encourage you to mark it uh, because that's where we'll be for the next several months. Um, and I, I think almost immediately the question comes to mind what, what, what are we doing in this ancient book? What could this possibly have to do with our lives? Because it is. It's not something other than an ancient text. It is. That's exactly what it is. It is, it is old. The circumstances in it are ancient and distant from us. And yet we are going to spend a lot of time thinking about what it says and what it teaches and thinking about how we are to apply it to our lives. Should we be doing that? There's some Christian pastors, preachers, authors that would say, no, man, like that stuff's too disconnected from our lives. We can't even pronounce the people's names, let alone relate to their circumstances. These Stories have nothing to do with our lives. Why should we give our time and energy to figuring out what they're saying? Those are good questions. And those are questions that I want to begin answering here at the beginning of our time in 1 Kings. So the first most obvious question is why read Kings? Why read Kings? Why, why spend our time here? What, what is the purpose? Is there, is there any purpose? And I will answer this question without my own words, and I will answer it generally, but I think uh, with a lot of authority. And I'll use the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 15 when he wrote, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that is followers of Jesus. What was written back then in ancient times was written for our instruction. Well, what Why do we need this instruction? Why do we need this teaching? Well, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Why do we read Kings? Because we need endurance and we need encouragement. And we know that following Jesus is not easy. It's not short-lived, it takes a long time, it's hard, it's complicated, it's messy. And so we need help to keep going. We need endurance, and it's incredibly discouraging. At times, it's totally disheartening. It's heartbreaking in many ways. And Paul says, good, go to the scriptures. When you know that, go to the scriptures. You need endurance. You need encouragement ultimately because we need hope. So why do we go to kings? The same reason we go to any passage in the Old Testament because we're trying to follow Jesus and it's hard. 
and we need endurance, and we need encouragement, and most of all, we need hope. And Paul promises we can find those things in the Old Testament scriptures. That is one blunt reason that we need to read Kings. Second question, who is Kings about? Who is Kings about? Now, obviously, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the life and kingdom of Solomon. That's like what our whole series is kind of shaped by and around. Uh, But ultimately, Solomon is not who Kings is about. In fact, if you were to walk up to the king of kings himself and you asked Jesus, Jesus, my church is about to go through the book of 1 Kings. Who is the story of Solomon all about? Jesus would look at you square in the eye with a little smirk and say, me. It is all about me. In John chapter five, Jesus was in an argument, debate with some religious leaders of the day and he says to them this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. He said, for if you believed Moses, author of many scriptures, he says you would believe me for he wrote many years, thousands of years before Jesus, he wrote about me. And then in that Really beautiful, strange, mysterious scene after Jesus' resurrection on that road with those two disciples. And they're all sad. They don't recognize him. They're all sad about Jesus being dead and gone. They thought he was the Messiah. They thought he was king. And Jesus, in Luke 24, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. But what about 1 Kings specifically? Well, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said the queen of the south, which we'll meet in 1 Kings 10, came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Why do you read 1 Kings 10 about the wisdom of Solomon? To help you learn more about Jesus, to point you and direct you towards the one who is greater than Solomon, Jesus himself. Why do we read about kings in the book of Kings? To point us toward the king of all kings, the only king worthy of our lives. That's what Jesus said. Why do we read about Solomon? Why do we learn about Solomon? Why was Solomon made wise? To point us forward to the one who is greater than Solomon. So who is this all about? It's about Jesus. And if you come and you listen to any sermon ever about 1 Kings, and you hear only of Solomon and how much of a piece of work he was, and that's all you hear, pray and amen, and you hear nothing about the finished work of Jesus, that is an incomplete sermon. Because 1 Kings is about Jesus, and it should point us to Jesus. But now the practical question. How do you read Kings? How do you read this book? Now, surface level, you're probably like, well, that's a dumb question. You just read it, right? You just read through it. And and that's a lot of people's take on these stories of the Old Testament, but that's actually not how you do it. I mean, on a surface level, it's fine to know the stories, right? We teach the stories to kids so that they at least know the stories, But you end up with some really strange views if all you do is read it and that's it. 
you end up with views like, well, if the Bible says it, it's good, right? And then you get to weird stories like in 1 Kings 1, just the first four verses, and you're like, whoa, that's a weird story. Is the Bible really saying that's good? That's not good. That's weird, right? And so you actually need to ask, well, why does it say that? What exactly does it mean? Or you read through much more serious things, like the Bible has a lot to say about slaves. And a lot of people will read what the Bible says about slaves and say, well, I no longer believe in the Bible because I don't like what it says right there. It says that slavery is good because it talks about it right there. Instead of actually asking the question, is that actually what the Bible means when it talks about slavery? That's just one example. And so no, it's actually not true that you just simply read it from front to back. These are stories. The book of Kings is what we would call biblical narrative, which is an historical story told with a purpose. And you see the difference. It's not just like a narrator like writing down as things happen, okay, then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. No, they are historical events, true historical events, but it is an author taking those very true historical events and saying and, and shaping a message out of those stories. He's trying to say something through the stories that he's writing. And this is a problem for people like you and me. This is a problem for 21st century Americans. We are really bad at reading stories. We think in linear thought. We've completely lost our imaginations. It is, it is shriveled up. We can't see behind the surface at all. We have a ridiculously limited attention span. We, we have almost completely lost our ability to slow down and to think, to read and to reread and to maybe doubt even our own conclusions about what we just read and read it again. No, we think in tweets and internet articles and news headlines. We speed read and skim, and we don't process anything or think about what we're actually reading. We just want the facts, right? Give me the bullet points, and that's good. We want everything clear, concise, coherent, especially when it comes to discussions about God. We want it black and white. We want you to state it plain. I get this on a regular basis. People look me in the eyes and they just say, tell me what to believe, more or less. Tell me what to believe. We want the entire Bible to be like the book of Romans that just says the gospel is this, point blank, good. That's how I wanna be spoken to, right? But the Bible is not like that. More than half of the Bible is narrative. This is obviously a way that the Lord loves to communicate with his people. Stories. He likes to tell us stories. So we need to become better at reading stories. One uh, commentator, scholar, Karen Jobes, wrote this. We read biblical narratives with the implied request, God, tell us your story. We come to the narrative asking questions about God. Teach me about God as I read through the book of Kings. But this is not to say that the author is not trying to make a specific point by telling the story. He is. And that just means we gotta be careful readers when we come to narrative and search for, this is key, search for its intended meaning. Okay, that means, I'll say it plainly, we aren't allowed to do whatever we want with the story. 
nor are we allowed to make it mean whatever we want it to mean. We, and, and preachers do this all the time. They kind of, especially with the Old Testament. Because the meaning, the intended meaning is not plain, they just want to turn it into some moralistic story, you know, almost like an Aesop's fable. And they never really wonder what it was the author actually trying to say. Now, we can make applications, but those applications are not always what the Bible intended them to be. We want to know what the author meant. But people have done this. They've made it be whatever they wanted to mean. So there's been whole books or whole sermons preached on be wise like Solomon. And then you read the actual story and you're like, ew. You know, I don't want to be like Solomon, gross. You know, or like be mighty like David. And then you read the whole story and you're like, ew, gross. No, I don't want to be like David, like that part too, you know. And so maybe that's not the intended message is be like these guys. Maybe that's not what the authors were trying to say. We need to ask, how, what is the author trying to communicate through the story? So for one example, the author could write, God is the only king worthy of your life. And you could be like, yeah, that's how I like to be talked to. I, just tell me that. That's your claim. That's what I want to hear. Or he could tell the story of all kinds of different kings and helps us to see how unworthy they are of our lives. He could try to tell you that God is worthy of your life or he could tell you the story of David and Solomon, these great kings who fall short. And so let's go to this first chapter and ask the question, what is the author teaching us? What is he trying to show us? And when you read through these narratives, it's in the details you Like repetition, when something's repeated over and over again, you're like, okay, I think that's what it's trying to tell me. Or things like poetry. When you go through the Old Testament, there's all these stops where there's poetry and it teaches you, oh, this is the thing that it's trying to tell me. Or you look for emphasis in the text. And in 1 Kings chapter 1, the emphasis is incredibly obvious. The first word in Hebrew, not in our English Bibles, but in Hebrew is king. Okay? And then in this one chapter, the noun or related verb for king is used 70 times in one chapter. That is the most, more than any other chapter in the entire Bible. We're not supposed to miss this. We're supposed to see that. That's what has risen to the surface. That is what is emphasized. We are meant to ask the question then, who will be king? So over and over again, you have, you have David, you have Adonijah, you have Solomon. Who's going to be king? That's the question that we come to here. Who is worthy to be king? What kind of king should we obey? What kind of king should we serve? And so I'll put the question to you. Who will be the king of your life? That's the surface. That's the question that rises to the surface as you read through 1 Kings 1. Who's worthy? of my life, which king should I serve? And listen, listen, something or somebody is king over your life. Something or somebody is calling the shots in your life. Something or somebody is handing you identity and telling you this is what make, gives you your worth. Something or somebody is determining for you your values and your priorities. 
Something or somebody is guiding your choices. That's what I mean by king. Now, if you're resistant and you're like, no, no one is. No one's king of me. I am my own king. I sit on the throne of my life. You are your own king. Okay. I'd invite you to ask yourself, honestly, are you worthy of that? Are you a good king, even to you? I mean, pay attention to your track record. How's that worked out for you? Do you always know what is best for you? Are you always a gracious and forgiving king? Are you actually worthy of being king of your life? Be honest about that. And I'd invite you to seek a better king. And if you're still adamant and you're like, no, I'm a great king, I'm nailing it, well, then I would just say, time is going to be a cruel teacher and showing you, and showing you that there's a better king available, available to you. For the rest of us, we're gonna go to 1 Kings 1 and we're gonna pay attention to these human kings. And the first king that we meet is in verses one through four and we'll call him a temporary king a temporary king, a frail, broken, I'd even say pathetic king. And here's how this is gonna work. I'll read through sometimes big chunks and we'll, we'll talk about them. Other times I'll sort of just like tell the narrate, uh, I'll narrate the uh, big, large chunk and we'll kind of jump around a lot. So it'd be cool if you had like your Bible open in front of you just so you know when I'm like reading or, and also when I'm just narrating, okay? So here we go, verse one. First Kings, let's meet a temporary king. Now, King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servants said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord, the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord, the king, may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman, throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. It's a very good example where if the Bible says it, that doesn't necessarily mean it's good, all right? So you got, you got what happened here, right? He's old, can't get warm. He's really kind of given up on life. He's just laying there, freezing cold. They can't get him warm. So they're like, you know what David likes? David likes the ladies. Let's go hold a beauty pageant and let's get him a really good looking one that we'll give to him and then he can lie with her, sort of revitalize him and that'll bring him back to life. That is nothing that the rest of the Bible condones at all nor is it anything that LifePoint Church endorses. But it also doesn't work. It says at the very end in verse four, the king knew her not. It wasn't enough to warm him up, to revitalize him at all. Now, I'll say, this is a strange way to begin this book, is it not? Here is the greatest king that Israel has ever known, the King David, and he is frail, powerless, pathetic, and even impotent. That's the picture that we have here at the beginning of human kings. 
But this is what the whole book is about. This is what the entire message of this book is. This is not only the fate of David. The Bible pulls no punches when it comes to its quote-unquote heroes. It portrays them in all of their humanness, in all of their brokenness. And this is not only the fate of David. It's the fate of every king that will ever live Ever, and not just kings, every person in power. And history proves that again and again and again. History is just one failed empire after another. One king that lives, rules, and dies after another. That is the story of history. And not just kings, not just empires. Unless some tragic thing takes us early, A deathbed waits for each and every one of us. You know that. We will find ourselves laying in the same predicament that King David finds himself in. He's not special and neither are we. That's where we will end up. And this here at the beginning of this story, telling us about these powerful kings, is a reminder that we, all of us, are temporary and we could be we can be nothing else this life here is a vapor a breath a smoke in fact ecclesiastes chapter 8 says no one has authority over the wind to restrain it and there is no authority over the day the day of death next windy day that we have which is probably today go outside and just try and grab the wind Get a hold of it. He says, you can no more grab a hold of the wind and take control of it than you can control the day of death. And that's true of all humans, kings and otherwise. We're temporary, and we would do well to remember that and to live in light of it. Are we ready for that deathbed? The second king that we meet after this temporary king is an arrogant king. We'll call him an arrogant king. We will relate to Adonijah a little more than we'd like to admit. Look at verse five. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And that I will be king sentence, the I is emphatic. It is I, declare I. But the will be is an ongoing, saying more, less than he put his hand up and said, I'll, I'll do it, I'll volunteer for this, and more of like, he always exalts himself. This is right in line with the type of person that he is. When the opportunity arose, he put his hand up and said, I, I will be king. I will be king. And he said he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done this? And, and he was also a very handsome man. Like, that's relevant. And he was born next after Absalom. Now, the reason that Absalom is there is to remind us, oh, this situation feels very familiar. Back in 2 Samuel, uh, David had another son named Absalom who tried to take over his father's kingdom. It didn't work. He rebelled, and he died. Okay? So this is to remind us as the readers, oh, wait, this has actually already happened before with a different son. 
Okay, so Absalom did that, and he was good-looking also. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. Those are people who were loyal to David, are now following after his son. Traitors. Okay, but Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehida, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is in Enregel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah, but, this is important, second time it's been mentioned, but he did not invite Nathan, the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. So if the question that arises out of this entire chapter is who will be king, Adonijah emphatically answers it, me. I will be king. Who is worthy to be king? I am. And what you notice completely absent is the question, well, what does David, the current king who's not dead yet, what does he say? Who does he say he should be king? Doesn't ask. But more importantly, And most noticeably, there is zero question of what God says. You see, Israel has a way of choosing a king, right? And it's not just, oh, I'm the next one in line. It is the question, who does God appoint as king? See, in Adonijah's mind, it's it's pretty simple. He's the next one in line, right? He, He had three brothers that were ahead of him. All of them are dead. That puts him next in line. And so he says, well, makes sense. I should be king. But that's not how Israel functions. David was not made king because he was the next in line. He wasn't even in the royal family. And he was chosen to be king. And Adonijah knows that. And he, in fact, knows that Solomon, the only brother that was not invited to his soiree, he knows that Solomon is supposed to be king. And he is deciding, declaring, I will be king because it doesn't matter what David said. It doesn't matter what God thinks. I will be king. And beloved, this is the picture of arrogance, of ego, of that ancient sin, pride. This is that sin that is in us that wreaks havoc in our own lives. It's that picture of us hearing those whispers in our ears. No, you can run your own life. You can make the decision. It doesn't matter what God thinks. It doesn't matter. A sin as ancient as the Garden of Eden. When that serpent told Eve, no, 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 no. God doesn't want you to eat that because you'll be like him. And she's like, well, I want to be like him. And so she goes and she eats. Adam eats. Same sin. This pride that tells us we ought to be king doesn't matter what God thinks. Beloved, our pride will reject God and his ways every time. Not only will we disobey him, not only will we disregard him, we will just completely ignore him. Our pride, if allowed to do so, will exalt us to the place where we actually are indifferent to the God of the universe. We will, in fact, ignore the God who created us. Our pride is that powerful in us. And we see it embodied in Adonijah. And then you see this sentence in verse 6. His father had never at any time displeased him. 
Like the dad never upset the kid. And he never even asked him, dude, why are you doing that? You shouldn't be doing that. And this says a lot about how Adonijah ended up a spoiled, arrogant brat. (coughs) Because he did not, David, and we see this all throughout David, right? Like we've already seen it in Absalom and 2 Samuel. Here it is again with Adonijah. He just did not do what Solomon would write later in Proverbs chapter three. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Or if you're following along with us and reading a proverb every day, Proverbs 15, you read this today. A fool despises his father's discipline, but a person who accepts correction is sensible. David never took the time, never took the time to discipline Adonijah, never once displeased him. Parents, parents, could you hear the call of Proverbs to make sure as your heavenly father disciplines you, as he disciplines you, and he cares for you and loves you, take the time to discipline your kids because you love and care for them. Discipline them like he does. But then he throws this big party, right? In verse nine, or in verse seven and then through nine, he throws this big party. And the whole party feels like he's a modern day politician, right? Like you can like see banners behind him, like vote for Adonijah. Do I have your vote for Adonijah, right? It's a big party in his name. All the elites are there. He's got famous people there. Like this fool was in the the party with uh, David for many years. Now he's supporting me. Can I count on your vote kind of thing, right? He even wants to appear religious. He does some sacrifices, right? He's smoozing over the people that, that that matters to them, just like a modern day politician, right? Drop a couple of God blesses in there and it's like, oh my gosh, he, or quote a Bible verse here and there. Oh, he is religious also. He's the total package. But twice it's mentioned that a handful of people are not there. Most noticeably, Nathan the prophet is not invited. Why? Well, Nathan very famously was not afraid of confronting people in power on their sin. He is the prophet who went to David when David had committed his sin with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. Nathan was the guy that came and put his finger in his chest and said, you have sinned against God. And Nathan had been known to not be intimidated by those in power, not even the great David, let alone his little pipsqueak son, Adonijah. Right? And so he's not even invited. And I think there's a warning here for us. What he is doing is he's surrounding himself with people who will not confront him, people who will not disagree with him, people who will not publicly correct him. And beloved, we need to be careful of this. We need to be careful of this because it's easy in our day, right? Everybody's offended by everything, so we're scared of offending one another all the time. And so we need to be careful of this. Right, social media promotes this, right? Just unfollow people that disagree with you or annoy you, and so we create sort of our own little safety echo chambers. It's not good for us. It's not good for us. Solomon writes in Proverbs 11, without guidance, a people will fail, but with many counselors, there is deliverance. With many different kinds of counselors, that aren't afraid of us, that aren't intimidated by us, who are willing to say you're wrong. You're heading in the wrong direction. 
who are willing to point out what is needing growth in our lives. Take and heed that warning, friends. Next, we'll continue and we meet here a faithful prophet, not king. (laughs) And that's actually a theme. We see Nathan take action. That's a theme in 1 Kings. We We don't see a lot of faithful kings, but we see a lot of faithful prophets. You see kings that'll make maybe one good decision, couple good decisions, but then they plummet downward. Rise, fall, rise, fall. But this thread that makes it way, its way through all the kings, both kings, is the prophets who are faithfully standing their ground for the Lord. And we see this in the prophet Nathan. Nathan is one of the most bold, courageous characters in scripture. And so this brings kind of the theme of of prophets, gives us the question of who actually makes an impact? Who impacts things in the kingdom of God? Who actually changes things in the kingdom of God? And the prophets show us that it's them. It's those who have courage, a boldness that is driven by a love for God and a love for his kingdom. And that needs to encourage us. It's, It's not... The, those with some prestigious, impressive title. It's not the ones in the pedestaled role that make this deep impact on the, in the kingdom of God. That's not how it works. We see that even in the person of Jesus who came as a king who served and then his disciples who he said, go and serve. And it's not these impressive roles that makes the difference in the kingdom of God. It's those who are willing to be ordinary, serve in their role with boldness, and are faithful to God. And that's what we see in Nathan. What Nathan does is he, sa- he sees what's about to happen. He sees Ananias coming into power. He, see- he knows that's not what's supposed to be happening. He knows Solomon's supposed to do it, so he jumps into action. His love for God and the love for his kingdom spurs him into action, and what he does is he goes to Bathsheba, who is Solomon's mom, and he says, hey, listen, I need you to go to David because he'll listen to you and tell him everything that's happening with Adonijah and say Solomon's supposed to be king, and so she does, and she says in verse 20, And now, my Lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my Lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my Lord, the king, sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. What he says there is, if you don't make Solomon king and Adonijah becomes king, I'm dead. Me and Solomon are as good as dead. And then Nathan's plan is, I'll come in right behind you and I'll essentially say the exact same thing, amen and amen, what she's saying is true. And that's the plan and that's what happens. And next, David is revived and is sparked into action and next we meet an inconsistent king. Look what happens with David in verse 29. He says, he hears, he hears Bathsheba, he hears Nathan, he hears what's going on, and it says, the king swore, saying, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Those are powerful words, Right? He says, I promised before the Lord and by his name that Solomon would sit on my throne. And that's what's going to take place today. 
powerful words, good and true words. And yet, they feel a little too late, right? Too little, too late. None of the chaos, disaster, the division that took place with Adonijah was ever necessary if David would have simply done what he said he was going to do. The sentiment, late, is a little bit hollow. You know, you, the reader is left to ask, where was that energy and passion before? You knew what was happening. If Nathan could know what was happening, Bathsheba could know what was happening, surely the king knew what was taking place. Where was that commitment to your promises before? David was revived, but ultimately inconsistent. He does the right thing, but in a completely undependable way, right? Kept us on the edge of our seats. And honestly, this is characteristic of David as king in general. Think about who he's talking to, right? Bathsheba, who he married after he had an affair with her and murdered her husband, is the one that's coming in to talk with him, to talk him out of or to convince him to do what he said he promised he was going to do already, right? He, he's up, he's down. He, yes, he is certainly the man after God's own heart, right? That's in the Bible, that's clear, but he is a man marked. His ministry, his kingship is marked by consistent inconsistency. And when you are reading through this and you feel that frustration with David, and you should, like you should, like you'd be like, man, this guy wouldn't even get out of bed in the beginning of it. And now he's like, okay, now I'll do what I said I was going to do, even though it's total chaos right now, right? And we're supposed to feel frustrated with him. I would encourage you then to let that frustration turn inward. Identify those areas in your life that are also inconsistent. I think inconsistency annoys all of us. I think it frustrates all of us, right? When a person is one way, one minute, and another way, another minute, that drives all of us crazy. Or when someone is, you know, like on time one minute and then not the next, and that's a very small example, but when you just don't know who to expect, that's frustrating to all of us. But maybe identify those places in your life where you have been less than dependable. The places in your life where people really aren't sure which version of you are gonna show up. Find those areas, big and small, where you're inconsistent. And then I'd encourage you to ask for grace. Grace, forgiveness, certainly. Repent of that, turn from it, call it what it is. Confess that it's sin. But I mean grace more so to grow in it, that God might make you faithful in that area, consistent and dependable in that area, rock solid in that area. Ask for that grace that would help you grow in that area. Then finally, it was a dramatic and bumpy road getting there, but order has been restored and we find a promised king the king that was supposed to be on the throne, the rightful king. Verse 38, so Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehida and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gehon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. 
That's God's blessing over Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. And then go down to verse 46. I love how plainly it states, Solomon sits on the royal throne. The question was asked, who's gonna be king? Who is worthy to be king? And by the end of the passage, we get Solomon sits on the throne. But this brings us to a question. And maybe one that you've thought of and you probably think often if you read through these biblical narratives, these stories, is where is God in this story? Where is he? He's so silent, so inactive, so unmentioned throughout all of this, right? And yet, the end of the story is the one that he promised is sitting on the throne. What God said would take place took place. But you notice it was chaos getting there, painful getting there, divisive, ugly, messy, getting there, right? And God was nowhere to be found, or so it seems. There was no intervention. There was no big miracle, right? No fire from heaven that said, like, no, Adonijah, you will not be king. Or Adonijah saying, I will be king. And no, no voice from heaven saying, no, it's Solomon, right? Nothing. God is in the background at best. No loud or obvious activity. But exactly what he promised would happen, happened. What God promised would come to pass, happened. And no one could stop it. No one could ruin it. No matter what it looked like, no one could stop what he promised would take place. And beloved, we need to hear that today. We need to believe that. Because for in our lives, God does at times seem silent. At times, God feels distant, inactive, but he never is. Now, it's messy, ugly, broken, because this is an awful place. Broken things happen in this broken world, but it is not because God has forgotten what he promised or that he has somehow lost control of what is going on. And we need to believe that. The entire Bible, the entire Bible invites us to trust God no matter what the circumstances are. And it's not a shallow invitation as though it's easy or simple or not difficult. It, it, it is well aware and honest about it being all of those things. And it invites us to trust God anyway and trust that he is in control. But it also challenges us to reimagine what in control looks like. Because in control cannot mean that everything is not messy, not broken. It can't mean that. Because nowhere in the Bible is that. Nothing is put together. Nothing happens smoothly. It's all Adonijah's rising up, chaos everywhere. It's this person killing that person, this person betraying that person. It's all that. It's real life. And yet, again and again and again, God takes that mess and he brings about his purposes 
perfectly. And it invites us to trust the God that is never out of control. So what happened to this Adonijah guy, right? What would you do? Be honest, what would you do? This guy trying to take over your, your throne. Look at verse 49. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and they rose and each went his own way and Adonijah feared Solomon so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar and so what that means is he he went to the altar to hold on to basically say you won't kill me if I'm gripping onto the altar and the and, you know where where we do sacrifices to the Lord he won't kill me there right so this dude who's like very confident he should be king I will be king is now sniveling and clinging to the altar right please don't kill me please don't kill me but that's when we meet in Solomon, a merciful king. Look what happens, verse 51. Then it was told Solomon, behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he, was la he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. You just can hear how whiny that is, right? And Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and paid homage to King Solomon, and Solomon said to him, go to your house. Mercy, mercy. Adonijah gets mercy, not because Adonijah deserves mercy at all. And then that's like, I mean, easy to see. He, did, he didn't deserve that forgiveness, right? He totally rejected God and God's way, totally rejected God's servant and God's king. He rejected his dad and what his dad wanted. He didn't deserve mercy. Adonijah is completely, in this story and as the story goes on, he's completely fake. He's an actor. He's, he's shallow and skin deep. His name means Yahweh is my Lord. The Israel God is my Lord. But he doesn't live like it. And here at the end of the, the, this chapter, he bows down to Solomon, but he doesn't mean it. He pays homage to Solomon, but it's fake. We'll see that next week. But this can be us as well. It's a good warning to us. We can claim to follow after Jesus, but not live like it. It could, we could just be a follower of Jesus in name only, but not actually live like what that is true. And, and oftentimes we'll experience it where, where the world will see like, hey man, you're not really acting in line with the way that you should. And I just wanna encourage you, Christian, the world should not have higher standards of following Jesus than we do. They shouldn't. And so when we claim I am a Christian, that means something. When we say I'm a disciple of Jesus in name, that means a lifestyle that ought to follow with it. But here, we see Solomon is a king who forgives, not just people who he's close to, he forgives his enemies. A king that would have killed Solomon had he had the chance. Solomon forgives him, he shows mercy. Every right to kill Adonijah but spares him, not because he deserved it, but because Solomon showed mercy. And we see something here. We learn something here. We get a taste of something that we need here. All of us need a king who will show us mercy because we need forgiveness, all of us. We know ourselves enough to know we have been arrogant. 
We have rebelled against God and his ways. We have been unfaithful. We have been foolish. So the same mercy that Adonijah needed, we need as well. We need a king who will show us the same mercy. We have no right to forgiveness apart from mercy and will never earn enough forgiveness to wipe the slate clean ever apart from undeserved mercy. And so maybe the conclusion now is, uh, all right, then we need a king like Solomon then, right? That's the king we need. Someone like Solomon can save us. We just gotta go out and find a king like Solomon, right? Well, no. While Solomon shows us what we want, he does, a merciful king, a promised king, we're gonna find sooner than later that he does a lot of stuff that we do not want as well. For one, he'll die, he is temporary, but also he's deeply prideful, so arrogant. He'll ultimately reject God and the worship of him. He's super inconsistent, and as we'll see next week, he does not always forgive his enemies at all. So no, we don't need a king like Solomon. So let's ask one more question about reading kings, which is probably on your mind, because that's a bit of a downer to end on. What do we gain from reading Kings then? What do we gain from this? Why, why read the book of Kings? Do we get anything from reading Kings? And the answer to that question is, yeah, we do. Is we end up with a longing for a better king. A better king. We'll see all their faults. And we'll see them and we'll pay attention. We're not gonna ignore them. I'm not gonna say, oh, like David was awesome even though he did this, this, and this. I'm not gonna say, be like Solomon even though he did this, this, and this. No, we'll be honest about where they're broken, where they're flawed, but we will admit, man, it'd be good to have a better king. Kings is written with a downward trajectory. Decline is the theme of kings, but we're supposed to be left with a longing for something better. We get a taste but it falls short, and, and we're meant to. We're meant to be left unsatisfied, disappointed. We're supposed to get to the end of every story of Solomon and say, he can't save me. He's not worthy of my life. But then we examine our own lives, and we say we relate more to him than we'd like to admit and come to the conclusion, I can't save me. I'm not worthy. And when we come to that conclusion, we end up taking two routes. One of despair. We sort of settle, like I'm as good as I get, I guess. We get cynical. Everybody's going to let us down. Everything's gonna let us down. I'm the best I can get, so I'll just settle for that. Or others of us keep seeking the taste that we get in these kings we can't let go of. We're unsatisfied, but we want to be satisfied. And friend, I want to encourage you that there is a good and better king. Keep seeking him. Keep looking for him. Keep hoping for him. And you'll find what the Apostle Paul found in 1 Timothy 1. He says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He said, I found a king that doesn't die. I, can't, I found a king that lasts. 
I found a king that is worthy of all glory and all honor, not just now, but forever and ever, amen. How did Paul come to that conclusion? Back up, 1 Timothy 1.12. He says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to ministry even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. I was arrogant. I was his enemy. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus, that is anointed King Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came, to show mercy to his enemies. And he says, and I am the worst of them. Nobody's worse, worse sinner than me. He said, but I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, to that king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Do you see? Paul found in Jesus a king who was promised, who forgave him, was merciful to him, even though he was his enemies, but also, but also was eternal, would never die, would last forever, would be his king now and forever. And so he said he was worthy of all honor, all glory. And friend, I wanna make you that same promise today. Jesus is the only king worthy of your life, the only one. All your seeking will take you to him. All of your seeking, all of your longing, all of your unsatisfaction will bring you ultimately to him and he is worthy of your life. I wanna invite you to give it to him. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for King Jesus. Thank you for the type of king that he is. Thank you, Father, for the, the privilege that it is to know him. And Father, I pray for LifePoint Church. I pray that you would help us be a community of people clinging to our good and better King, Jesus. But not just in name, but that it would look like it here. That this is a place and a people that love and serve King Jesus. That he rules here, that he reigns here, that he is worthy of all the glory and honor we can give here. He would be our king because he is worthy to be our king. In his name.